Hey, welcome back to The Deal. This week's episode sponsored by The Optimist. The Optimist is at the platform in Culver City. My buddy Joey and David run it and own it. It's got all the coolest gear. I wear all my stuff and buy all my clothes, shoes, clothes, accessories from there. You can wear it to work, you can wear it out, you can wear it casually. They handpick all the clothes and all the stylish skews from little fashion boutiques all over the world. So all the best stuff ends up there. So The Optimist, let them know I sent you for 20% off. You can walk into the store or go to theoptimist.com. This week's episode is Nima Ahadian, one of the top apartment brokers on the West Coast in Los Angeles at Marcus Milchap. We go way back. We're going to get into the apartment moratorium, tenant landlord issues with COVID, how the market has uh, been looking, and kind of get into some unbelievable investment stuff that you just can't even imagine, you know, how prices are going up when there's so many issues with COVID, but he's gonna, he's at the epicenter of all that. School's in session. Also wanna give a shout out to my boy, Lee Syatt is back with us today. What up, Lee Syatt, OG producer, old school. He's helping us out today, so welcome back, Lee. Good to see you. Hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as we do. Please subscribe to The Deal with Danny Brown. Thank you, at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you consume your podcast, as well as YouTube. Adios. Welcome, Nima. Good to see you, my friend. Welcome to The Deal. How are you? What's up? I'm doing great, Danny. Thanks for having me. What's going on? Yes. Uh, Shana Tova to you and your family. Thanks for joining us. And I've been trying to get you on. For those that don't know Nima, a buddy of mine, we go back uh, about 10 years or so. He's one of the leading apartment uh, brokers on the West Coast. You're at Marcus Millichap. You've been selling apartment buildings like hotcakes. And, uh, you know, before we get into your story of uh, your career and where you grew up and all that, I kind of want to hear a quick overview since apartments and tenant landlord stuff is such a hot topic in real estate and culture right now. Can you give us an overview of what's going on with the moratorium and tenant landlords? And I know things are changing day to day, but here we are in 2021 in September, kind of walk us through what's been going on over the past year, year and a half since COVID and what looks like is going to go on in terms of moving forward. I mean, from what I've heard, talking to you and other people, the market continues and people are still trading, which sounds like it defies logic. But I'd love you to just kind of speak to what's the environment been like during COVID and now a year and a half into it. Well, thanks for asking and having me on. I'm excited to go through a lot of these talking points together. Um, That's a loaded question and a little bit difficult to pinpoint because it changes so quickly. Uh, You know, when COVID hit, obviously, they they put a freeze on any kind of tenant evictions, especially for people that are not paying rent um, for obvious reasons. And that has been put in place for over a year now. Yeah. And what it did was that it, it put more strength in the in the court of the tenants, which is fine if they're really struggling, and a lot of people are, but they've lost their jobs, and sure. unemployment only gets you so far, and it became a challenge. Um, but on the other side, we've had a lot of tenants take advantage of the opportunity that that allows, and they just chose not to pay rent, and the del- delinquency amount became rather large, and it's really one of the first questions that we get asked by borrowers and buyers. Uh, when I say borrowers, l- lenders require delinquency reports now for mm-hmm. underwriting, and a buyer will ask who's behind. So the, the challenge is that, you know, we, 
we were speaking with a tenant eviction attorney, and he said that the courts knew how backed up they were by the amount of forms that people were downloading in order to get in queue just to be able to process an eviction for lack of payment or for other evictions. There's other yeah. evictions that are still out there for, you know, violent tenants, people that cause harm to a building, people that um, aren't following the laws of the lease. And they are so backed up. The challenge is that even if you had a rightful case to be able to try to get a tenant either evicted or moved or whatever it might be, you might not have that ability to do so. So um, despite that, Danny, the, the amount of demand that we're getting for apartments is still very, very high. Yeah. And what I mean is by buyers. And it, it's has it affected the market? Yes. Um, is it a question that we ask? 100%. We've had some buildings with the delinquencies as high as 25% in a property. Hmm. So that's the high. The 25% would be the... Yeah, I think 25, you know, we've seen a couple situations with 30% delinquency. That what would be, what, if, I know this is an impossible thing to answer, but if just roughly, would you say across the board, what would be the average, uh, if you had to just throw out an average range, yeah, obviously if you're saying 30% is pretty extreme, what's kind of the average? So people have an idea of the context of what we're dealing with. Is so a year ago, is it 20, is it five? A year ago today, we, we did a similar podcast like this um, where immediately people, owners were experiencing delinquencies around 85, 80 to 90% range of occupancy, excuse me. Of Got it. So, so 10 to 15%, maybe 20% okay. on the high side. Yeah. Um, on a few rare occasions, you'll get some buildings where tenants actually collaborate together. Wow. And they educate each other by what the laws allow to protect them, and they choose not to pay. Um, and what a lot of managing companies are doing is really trying to hone down on that. If if you know the tenant's still leaving at eight thirty to go to work and comes home at five thirty, if they're working and not paying rent, it's obviously, but not obviously, but it could be one taking advantage of the system. Yes. Um, if people have some real challenges, there's a lot of programs that are available for tenants to help them. And and proactive owners and managing companies are, are educating their tenants. So a year ago, Danny, it was maybe in that range. Today, it's less than 10% okay. across the board. We just listed a 72-unit portfolio in Orange County. Yeah. One delinquency. Phenomenal. That's interesting. That's really interesting to hear the discrepancies uh, in the you know in Orange County in that building. And then I would say, well, is Orange County in general trending less less yes. uh, you know because it's like a different county. I could see it's trending less in LA County. So so in Orange County for sure. In LA County, if we were to you know so much we have a, we have a hundred we have four hundred and thirty two units for sale as a portfolio in LA. It's fourteen buildings. Yeah. The delinquency there across the 14 buildings is a is less than five percent. Wow. So that's it's very low. So here's another, there's so much to unpack in so many different directions. I'm curious because you brought it up and saying, look, there's a lot of people that are being opportunistic that are taking advantage, just like they have with the EDD and the unemployment. They're taking advantage of, hey, I have a job, I have income, I could pay my rent fine, but I'm gonna take advantage. 
is there a ch any checks and balances, uh, you know, for the most part for landlords and for honest landlords that are doing a good job managing buildings? Can they, how do they stop it? Or are they just pretty much screwed because the city's so overwhelmed they can't manage it and police it? There is, an, there is now a program, a statewide program that landlords can offer, uh, can, can sign up for that offers them uh, relief or lack of payment because Look, Danny, on the other side, as an owner, you, your utilities have gone up probably 15 to 20% sure. in the last two years just because everyone's home, right? They're using the utilities more. Um, the banks haven't really started any kind of forgiveness program for owners, yeah. so they have to pay their mortgages. They got their mortgage yeah. payment every month. Boom, boom, boom. And, you know, vacancies have creeped up, and and the and. To get a unit rented today is a little bit harder than it was pre-COVID. Tenants have more options. There's a lot of um, concessions being offered. I'd say less today than six months ago, but people were mm -hmm. offering as high as two months free rent. Wow. Wow, because they had to, obviously. They wouldn't do it if they didn't have to. You, you know, you, you, you got to capture the tenants. Yeah. So I've heard that as well, that uh, a lot of landlords and property managers were being proactive and offering free rent or coming to the table to renegotiate, lock in long-term leases at lower rents just to, to, to maintain tenants because people yeah. were leaving. Um, God, there's just so many interesting things in this one snapshot of the market. It, it tells so much. So now it's my understanding the moratorium was pushed now to the end of this month, September, but yes. it's, it keeps moving. So we don't really know if it's going to be it end keeps of September. moving. And, you know, the reality is if it's when you start getting towards the holidays, they're probably not going to enforce it during that. So the question I have, whether it becomes September 30th or January 30th, when it stops, what happens? What happens to all these people that are delinquent and these landlords that are, you know, in, they have to collect? Like how, how does that, I get in theory, okay, now you start paying rent. Well, what happens if you have, you know, a year of rent that you haven't paid? Are you supposed to you're supposed to pay that up, and is the government helping with that? Like, are the government yeah, giving I, landlords money to? I mean, it depends on the tenancy and their appetite for how much they affect their credit. So, what I understand from is that you're not allowed to, if a tenant were to leave a unit um, for lack of payment, then it wouldn't be reflected on their credit. So that, that, that does discourage people from paying a 12-month outstanding balance. Yeah, they can walk so, away from it, you're saying. Exactly, they can walk away from it, which is what, what some people are really fearing is what happens when this comes to an end and you sure. go to collect your $28,000 right. backed up. The guy says, you know, I'm actually going to just move down the street. They're offering yeah. the same unit for 100 bucks less. Ah. So it's been... What I've found more successful are people educating each other and really using uh, education and communication to try to bring the tenants to find ways to support themselves through different programs or putting together payment plans. We're fine. You know, pay 25% of your rent for the next X amount of months and we want to keep you in the building and keep you happy because you don't want to lose your tenants. Right. And it's, it's hard to replace. So what I'm hearing is you're saying the landlords have to get creative and flexible and take yeah. the risk because the risk of not doing that is the tenants could just walk 
and maybe fine. They may just be able to clear the, the slate yeah. clean and walk. So as a landlord, you better get in front of it and, you know, collect some of it rather than none of it. Are, is the government refunding the landlord's rent? I, I heard something about that being there, part of it. There's a program that you're allowed to um, apply to get re to get a portion of your lost rent refunded, and you can. And we've had a few clients that have successfully received those funds, but it's a process, and I don't think you get a hundred percent of it back. Got it. All right, so we get the landscape. The landscape is all over the place and is changing from day to day. Yeah. Another thing you said, which again, there's so many things to dive into, was that there's still a big demand for investors to buy these things. Yeah. So what is your professional opinion on why with all these risks and tenants not paying rent and pressure of rents coming down, now you're an investor, you would think, well, I don't want any part of this. I'll go to another asset class. So what, what's your take on why is this still a big demand? Um. There's a, so many things going on. So yeah, it's a pretty the reason complicated why question. We have so much demand is most investors in the commercial space feel that multifamily is the safest asset class today. Maybe industrial also, but yeah. multifamily is one of the safest in, uh, investment vehicles to be in today. Yeah, especially to fight over inflation if that were to come. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of people that owned shopping centers, retail centers yes. that are now looking to get into the multifamily space because for obvious reasons in the retail area, they've, they've been, been nailed. Yeah, They've been nailed and they just want, yeah, multifamily requires much more management. Yes, the political climate in California is very challenging. Yes, utilities go up and down because, you know, we're, we're gross leases. We're not triple that. So, yeah. The utilities go up. It's on the landlord for the most part, unless you have rubs. But we're the safest. When you have a 20-unit building and you get one vacancy, 5% is better than 40% of Got the it. structure. All right. So that's that's a way for a layman's way to understand. It makes a total sense. So if you're an investor that's in other asset classes like retail or office, and people, it's a lot more painful for those owners because their yes. office buildings are empty, no, retails are out of business. So, okay, you go to multifamily, which has always historically been a safe investment. And now, even in a tough tenant market, it still beats the risks everywhere else. So that makes sense. Sure. So here's the next question. Um, if you are an investor and, you know, why invest in L.A. versus Dallas, Florida, wherever else, a million markets. Sure. Uh, I'd be I'd be curious because for people that aren't in LA and aren't doing real estate in LA that are listening, can you give us sort of the you know the thirty second pitch on cap rates and what they really look like? You know, because most people that aren't in LA when they hear about these cap rates and how low they are, they're like, huh? But yeah. You know, what's a typical, I know every market and sub market's different, but what's the range from low to, to high of what cap rates have been uh, in the uh, last few years? So we'll, I'll try to answer your two questions together. Uh, look, we, we're bringing to market an eight-unit building on Edinburgh and West Hollywood at a three-cap. Mm -hmm. Three-cap. And that's City of West Hollywood or L.A.? City of West Hollywood. Yeah. Just south of Santa Monica at a three-cap. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about 
average for that location? Yeah, maybe, you know, so we have a lot of upsides. So we're a little bit lower on the cap rate going in, but on a price per door and a price per square foot, we're in line, maybe even a little bit more attractive than some of the comps because we have the upside. The same family's owned it for 25 years. They're just looking to get out. So who buys that property? Answering your question of who's buying yeah. in LA and why would you? Um, look, we're a market of appreciation. You know, you, you don't buy in LA because you want to get a five and a half cap deal. They just don't exist. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're trading between three and four and a quarter, four and a half maybe. Um, the buyers of our properties are typically long-term owners mm-hmm. and or people that create value by relocating some tenants through either buying out tenants, renovation programs, whatever it might be to create some value and they get their pop. Um, We do see a lot of investors leaving the state and a a tremendous amount actually. Excuse you. Because the, 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 the amount of friction in California and Southern California specifically is so high to get to a stabilized property. Where if you take that same investor and you buy a 300-unit building in Texas or even parts of Utah or even San Bernardino or if you look at Florida, your your path to a clear NOI is much easier than L.A. Yeah. It's just like, you know, what happens if these tenants don't move out and those do? It's just we have a lot more friction. That friction creates opportunity. But it's a lot more brain power, and yeah. we are seeing a lot of people taking their equity out of state um, just because it's easier. And the financing's the same, Danny. You can get three and a quarter percent for my West Hollywood building, probably three percent today. And if you choose to buy two hundred twenty units in Texas, you still get the same financing. Yeah. So if you're chasing yield, then yeah, out of state seems to be more attractive. But our market is driven by appreciation and appreciation. It's still L.A. So that's the big difference for people that don't know. When you look at L.A. and you buy prime L.A. over 10 or 20 year time horizon, the actual land appreciation, forget rents, forget anything else. Just the land appreciation is generally pretty significant, whereas a lot of these other markets, although they may be experiencing super uh, appreciation over this last five years, but overall, historically, they don't appreciate that much. So it's right. really about the the return. And in here, you know, people will take a two and a half, three and a half cap rate and play the long game. And as you said, take the risk and the brain damage of figuring out if they can reposition the property, buy out tenants, remodel. It takes right. a lot more work. So if you're looking for simple return and less work, you're not jumping in to the LA market. For the LA buyer, you're looking at long-term appreciation or opportunistic repositioning, which will be brain damage. Exactly. It won't be an easy thing. Yeah, so that's 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 and it's because we're, we're we're a rent-controlled market, so that you do have the loss to lease. Yeah. In a non-rent-controlled market, where yes, you have rent growth in a lot of these areas because during COVID, we've all learned that you can work almost as efficiently from home than you can right. from the office. So, and, you know, if your home is in West Hollywood or if your home is in Austin, you can still work anywhere. Yeah. So they might be getting appreciation in rents, five, eight, 9% a year, which is great. Yeah. But, you know, we still have the rent on a one bedroom 
and nine hundred and twenty-five dollars a month. Yeah. Where if that tenant were to move out, it's eighteen hundred. That's yeah, a huge double pop in value. Right. It's right. And then to buy out a tenant, I know it's again. There's there's equations right based on who, what type of tenant, how long they've been there. Yeah. But in general, what is sort of the high end of buyouts? When you see if someone's been there a long time, they're protected class per tenant. What are you seeing? What's typical? Well, the 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 city has a formula that's relatively easy to understand, but it's seventeen thousand to I think it's like twenty eight thousand, depending on dependency and handicap. And all that. Yeah, that's if they choose to vacate. Yeah, that's if they choose, and that's per person. So, if there, what if there's two? No, roommates? it's per unit. Per unit, it's per unit. So, if it's a couple, it's per unit. It's yes. not each person. But that's only if someone's willing to move. And once they realize how high rents are, that's the challenge. They, yes. The money doesn't go that far, and if you're looking to stay in this market. But, anyways, that's another topic. So, let me pivot now. We've got into the the real estate minutia, but I really want to pivot now and start and talk about you, Nima. Let's oh, talk oh. about. Let's get into the personal stuff. Let's start with like, hey, where did you grow up? You know, where were you raised? And sure. where you went to school? And then let's talk Europe from that into how the heck you got into real estate. From being wow. born to getting to real estate within 10 seconds or less. Thank you. You're on. No, yeah, it doesn't great. have to be 10 seconds. Se- <laughs> it doesn't have to be 10 uh, seconds. But let's just start with, did, were you raised here? Where were you grew raised? Grew up in West LA, went to Palo West Side. Place. You went yeah, to Pali, P-Town, killer. Yes, sir. U-Town, baby. Not P-Town. Yeah, we loved it. Allie was great. Went Allie to USC I. for college. Uh, there you go. Now we're talking. Exactly. Dun, dun, dun. We are. I'm a true LA guy. I love LA as much as people diss our city for the homelessness, which drives me crazy. It's like, awful you right and, now. Yeah. You know, it kind of looks like a third world city at times. It's home. Yeah, and it'll right always now. Be home for me. And I love this place. Um, um Graduated so SC, tried to find my groove, had a friend of mine that was uh, living in Chicago. I went to go visit him, and his dad was a commercial broker developer. And yeah. He kind of showed me what he did for a little bit, and I took a liking towards it. And uh, funny story, not many people know this, but I keep it in my desk because I tell people, you know, the LA Business Journal takes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every year it's called The List, right? Yeah, baby, The List. So I all I the mockers. What's that? All the mockers. Yeah, exactly. So I asked my friend's dad, I go, what do you do for a living? He said, commercial real estate sales. I said, oh, cool. I wrote it down on a post-it. I'll never forget. I was like 20 years old, 19 years old. Came back to LA and I looked it up. <coughs> Long story short, I pulled out the LA Business Journal, commercial real estate companies. Yeah. I called the top 10. I interviewed four of them, five of them. <laughs> I landed here in 2000, and it's been 22 years. I've never left. Wow. So you've been at Marcus Millshaft from day one, never left. And this is your first career. You didn't try anything else. Went right into real estate. I tried different things, but nothing really. That's, this has been your, yeah. your most committed significant. That's amazing. So l- let me rewind. Did your parents grow up in L.A. or no? Yeah, we were born. I mean, I was born in England, but we're from Iran. We lived in you know, I, I lived so in Iran for five years. We so you were born in England or Iran? I was born in Manchester, yeah. So you were, and your parents were born in Iran? My parents were born in Iran. They were studying in um, they were studying in Manchester for my dad's doctor's degree. Uh, they were married, obviously. They had me after we were born. He finished his doctor's, came back to Iran. 
that year was 78. Oof, got it. Had to get most the of the family started leaving, and then you know, we escaped. We did the uh, wow, some of the stories you hear on horseback and camels and hiding in trains, and we escaped the country with political refuge. Holy, shit. um, showed up in the United States with an organization that helped Jews flee from Austria in 83. That's how you got here. So you were how old? You remember? I was you were five years old. Yeah. Oh my God! Never forget sitting on a horse in the middle of the mountains, and my mom was pregnant. My wow. brother. How about that? As influencing your life and impacting you must be seared into your memory. So I, you got here as a young kid. Your parents did they speak English? Or yes, because they went to school in English. Went, they, because they were studying in England, they they spoke English. I mean, you know, they had the accent and all that, but they they spoke English and. We had some English school um, in Iran, but you know, at five years old, you're showing up, and yeah, of course, you know, your your lunches smell different than everyone else's. Lunches. Yeah, total immigrant <laughs> experience. Total, <laughs> total immigrant experience. You're having you're having bringing lunch kebab. I'm bringing yeah. Kebab. It's like, dude, what is? Oh, mom, can I just get a freaking ham sandwich or something? Yeah, yeah I don't know. I'm not jiving. So. Before we move on, talk to me about that immigrant experience for you and your parents. And your parents, your dad was a doctorate. Was he able to do what he was doing or he had to start from scratch? He had a PhD in chemistry. Wow. Because back in back in Iran, it was, you know, you go into engineering and you go in the chemical field or you do, yeah. you go into the business, you know, business field. And he was an educated guy. And he chose to go into chemistry. He got his PhD, um, moved back to Iran in 78, 79. Took a few years to either be a, I don't know if he was a professor or if he was working for a company doing research. And by then, you know, everyone in the family starts leaving. Yeah. So he was just kind of helping his dad with their business, which was dying and um, ended up moving to LA. and. Yeah, if you want the immigrant experience, you're a you're a doctor in chemistry, and he opens up a Xerox store in Midwilshire. That's what he did, entrepreneur. And, Xerox. And store. it was it was either you continue to do some kind of professor work, or you know he he's, he's probably in his mid thirties, late thirties. So yeah, what are you going to do? Go be a chemical engineer at some company in the U.S. or you know, Xeroxing and printing was on the rise then, and right, he opened up a shop with a partner, and he's been doing that for thirty plus years. Got it. There it is. There's the, that's what he's been doing. What an experience from there. So you got. Thank you for sharing that, and it's always fascinating sure. as people to to hear the, the the hardcore real immigrant experience. Yeah, and and so many of our friends and family have had that very similar story. So thanks for sharing that. Sure. All right, so we're getting back to you get into real estate. You're a young guy. Uh, getting into real estate as a young guy is always tough because there's established brokers and everyone has relationships. So talk to me about how you built your business, what it looked like the first couple of years in business. Uh, did you get your teeth kicked in? You know, oh, what yeah. was that experience like? Teeth kicked in, but That's it's a little nice. different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear you. Um, you know, it's a, look, brokerage is a challenging business. As you know, Danny, you're one of the best residential brokers in town, but it's not easy Thank you. to do. Got to, got to wake up and put on your steel cup every day. You have no option because you're going to get you're gonna get nailed. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you deal with a little bit different. Because you're residential, you have a lot more emotions involved, I feel like. Yeah. 
which for makes sure. it probably a little bit more challenging on your side. For sure. More personal, more emotional, uh, you know, a little less numbers. I mean, I get you as an investment broker, it's a lot about numbers, but then again, the human element, you're dealing with different yeah. personalities and egos and other things that come into play. Yeah. You know, it's uh, someone once told me a powerful line that I'll never forget is that we're in the business of relationships. We just happen to sell real estate. Yeah, that's right. And it's so true. It's that if if you think about it, everything is a relationship. You approach it different. Or if you think about it as a transaction, you're going to get stuck. Yeah. 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 Um, For sure. But it was challenging the first few years. You know, it's a a lot of people doing brokerage in LA. I was in the multifamily space. I had zero idea about anything about real estate. Yeah. I didn't know what escrow was. I didn't know what title was. Starting from scratch. Nothing. Starting from scratch. Zero. And you just kind of go through it one deal at a time. Um, I mean, luckily, we had a lot of training at the company. We had a lot of support. And it was tough for a while. It was so tough that I even gave myself an exit date. Got it. Like, you know, if I don't have this much tied up in contract or, you know, then the writing's on the wall. I got to yeah. move. And, you know, luckily, uh, things kind of panned out during that process. I think what happened was that when I set the exit date for myself, I had a shift in my in my approach, and I started doing a little bit better. Huh. I gave myself a window. I said, "Dude, in six months, if you know if I don't have this much tied up or under contract or listed or closed, I'm going to go do something else." Got it. The creates emergency, lit a fire under your ass. Yeah, I mean, because so how, how many years time. into the business was this? Maybe a year and a half. All right, so not that far into it. You were still new. A uh, year and a half, maybe, and then, you know, the six months would have been like the two-year mark. Yeah, yeah. And um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a tough business, but it's it really gets more enjoyable through time. Sure. And, I mean, now we have just – we had a team meeting before this. We have 15 active escrows, 24 Ooh. listings behind it. Whoa. How many people are on that team on your team managing this? Uh, there's there's me. There's three staff members that are dedicated to the agents yeah. and myself, and then there's five sales agents. Got it. So it's you and five agents, and then a support staff, operations staff. That's a lot of a lot of business. When you started and you were talking about this, were you on your own or were you on a team at that point? I was a, a junior to a senior broker that. You know, in hindsight, it was probably maybe part of my learning curve is that he didn't give me any love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No training, no support, just ice cold, you know? Ice cold, yeah. Yeah. So I learned it all myself. Um, we did a couple of deals together. I satisfied my requirement with him and yeah. I went solo. You were solo and went on and, your own. And then, yeah, I was on my own. And then, you know, I think the landscape for brokerage has also changed where clients want a team approach and it's better for them that we have multiple people working the deal and you have several uh, heartbeats that you can reach if you need something. And yeah. it's just, before it used to be a one man show, right? And it's just yeah. whoever had the highest energy level could yeah. do the most wins. But now it's, I, I feel like it's better for the client to have a team approach. Yeah, that's good. If you were, uh, had a new, uh, a friend or someone coming out of college or MBA and they wanted to get into what you're doing, 
what would be your advice as to how they approach it? Would it be to join a team? Would it be to join a broker and be their junior? What would be your advice to someone doing that? Um, my advice would be to, I think, joining a high-efficiency team where you can learn all the different aspects and how a team works with each other um, is a big part of it. I think joining a company that gives you training and ability to learn as the market changes is really helpful because we're our industry changes every day and, and the real estate changes and the areas change and the product changes. So to, to adapt to that change is really important where if you're just kind of sitting in an office by yourself, you've just become focused on the transaction, which can be really hard. Um, where if you learn the whole thing, it's also a great stepping stone. You know, a lot of people come into commercial brokerage and then they realize what they don't like or what they like and they move on. They shift, yeah. So it's good to be exposed to all of them. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I, I would say the same thing in residential. If you can get on a team or a junior, even if it's to one, whoever's going to give you some attention and some education is a good opportunity because you need to learn and see what you're good at and what you like, what you don't like. And there's such a steep learning curve. There's so many nuances to what we do. And it, it takes so long to just even get a portion of the nuances that you need to know. Uh, so I know that that's really important. So talk to you me know, about... Go Danny, ahead. I'll tell you something you said that you nailed it. It's actually not only is you know the team you joined, it's who's the, who's the person that's teaching you. Yeah. Who's your mentor? Yeah. Because... I, I truly get a joy from seeing other people do well. So I want my guys to do well, not because I'm financially rewarded by it, which we are obviously because yeah. we all, but I want to see the guy or the gal come in, struggle and then become successful. Yeah. So I think if you can partner with somebody whose interest is in line with that, you'll do well versus like for me, it was the guy just wanted, you know, a couple of deals oh. and move on. Cold as ice. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, he, we did our deals, then I moved on, and that was the end of the relationship. Yeah. Also, my team members don't leave us. They stick yeah. around. Like is that, five, is that guy working Is that guy working for you now or no? No. <laughs> he did all right, but he's not I'm sure. I'm sure he did fine. So talk me through some fun deals or interesting deals or big deals. I, I know a lot of your stuff, you, you talk about you're selling portfolios of People yeah. that have that have you know multiple properties. What are what are some of the fun or interesting or big deals that you can think of and what you could share? Sure. I mean, we've had the last few years have been really wild. Um, I'll give you an example of one of the, the more challenging larger transactions that we did. Just because, I mean, if we're doing this podcast to reach different people to educate them, it's actually it was a Huge learning curve for me. I had a client, Jim Armour, that passed away, and he owned 26 apartment buildings in LA. He was a one-man show. Wow, that's a lot and of property. If you focus on the client, I've always treated him the way that you want to treat your father if he was buying or selling. And he was never a seller. The guy would always buy and buy and buy and buy. And uh, one day he called and said, uh, I'm thinking of doing something. My health isn't where it needs to be. Um, just met with them, fostered that relationship, really tried to help them. Didn't focus on the sale. 
He ended up getting sick and passing away, unfortunately. Oh, sorry to hear that. And the family hired us through a professional trustee and fiduciary that was hired. Yeah. And we had to dispose 26 apartment buildings as quickly as possible. <laughs> and um, the total sale was like 100, 126 million. But what was interesting is that the, our, our approach and why the team was so helpful, we, first of all, mapped all the properties, drove all of them, put together documentation. There was two different managing companies. We met them both, gathered information on the products as if we're the owners. You know, yeah. like we're doing it as if I'm the owner. Yeah. Uh, I knew more about the buildings than anyone in the family did yeah. or the attorneys that were hired. We put together a game plan of how we would sell the properties. We looked up every single um, existing loan to see what the penalties were. And we had tabled them into four tiers of, instead of doing 26 transactions, mm -hmm. and you can't do a one portfolio because the price would have been discounted too much. We broke it into four level tiers and then we, we sold them in four packages. Hmm. It took us about 11 months and we closed the week before COVID came. Oh, my God. And yeah. the buyer asked us for an extension and said, you know, we need 30 more days to close. And I was like, why? He says, well, you know, blah, 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 and the lender. And I said, oh, let me talk to your lender. So we spoke to the lender and realized he just wanted the extra 30 days. He didn't really need it. Yeah. And we, we basically said, I'm sorry, but we're not going to give you an extension. Yeah, and we're right. so grateful if we did because it closed. And literally, Danny, the next Friday, news of COVID hit. They could and have like, pulled, out. pulled out of the market for yeah. you know, a couple months. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was, is just timing is everything. Timing is everything. That and, was one of the larger ones. And, you know, they're all fun. They're all different in their own way. And it sounds kind of corny, but I you, I learned from every deal. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. When you stop learning, man, that means you're, you know, that's it. You've shut yeah. down. There's so much to learn. There's so many wrinkles to everything. And just the, whether it's personalities, whether it's laws, whether whatever, there's so much stuff changing all the time, which is what keeps it interesting and engaging. That's yeah. one of the one of the incredible things about being in real estate. You're always on your toes and every day is different. So speaking about that, look, you've done a ton of business. You've built a big business and a team. Uh, how do you balance it all? You have a family now. Now you have kids. Sure. So you have two kids now? Yeah, I got a three-and-a-half-year-old three boy and a five-and-a-half-month-old girl. Yeah, so you're in, like, twilight zone of being a dad. I know you're very involved. Hence in the water and the coffee. I'm just me, trying to keep it all together. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, there so you go. <laughs> Ten years later, it hasn't stopped. I never drank coffee until I had kids, and now it's like, I have to have it. Um, so... Look, this is a question I like to ask real successful people. Uh, it's kind of a trick question because I get it. I know what balance is. It's impossible. But what is? how do you find balance? What does your typical routine and day look like? And how do you shift and pivot gears from, okay, dad time, family man time, business time, sure. et cetera, et cetera? Man, it's a tough – it's tough. You know, you, I, I've, I made my family my priority. Um, so that always comes first. My wife and my two kids are always a priority. But when you're this active in your business, it becomes a little bit of a challenge. 
I want to answer your question, but right now is funky because we're we have a five month old, so sleep is out of the out of the picture. <laughs> and I'm trying to think what was life before her. You know, it would be early mornings, five a.m. Usually, I I try to do. So you're like an early to, riser. Yeah, I, I get up as early as I can, and it's usually from like that five to six thirty would be. If I can do a workout, great. And if I can prepare my team for the day, it was great. Yeah. Where I'll go through all the emails or whatever, or just kind of like prepare the whole team for the day. Mm-hmm. So by, by the time they come in, by 7 o'clock, my 30 emails are out and they have some structure. Yeah. So you get the day set up early, quiet time with no one disturbing you. You're setting uh, yeah. up your personal workout health and your business plan for the day. Yeah. Um. Then, you know, when the kids get up, you're doing that for a couple hours in the morning and just trying to feed them and dress them and uh, them, all that crazy stuff. Get them stuff. going, yeah. And then uh, now I'm finding my, sounds funny, my free time is actually after I drop the kids off. I'll typically get like an hour or two hours to myself where my new thing is I'm trying to get to the beach three times a week, um, especially during summer. So I'll go for a swim. I'll just hang out. I'll stretch. I'll make some phone calls. Got it. Nice. And that 90 minute is like my battery charging time. Yes. A mini vacation. That's incredible. I find that, and that's huge. I'm stopping you here because I find things like that, and it's different for everyone, finding the hour or two in your day, whether it's daily, once a week, once a day, whenever you can, is huge benefit. The ROI on that recharging and getting your head right when you're th- like it's hard to explain but when you're that busy and you're getting pulled in every direction if you don't do that and find oh, yeah. that time you can't your capacity isn't as efficient you, you're maxing out you're drained you're upset you're resi- so that is brilliant i love it and i've been reminding myself more and more to do it and i i have uh, but i think that's so key because when people start really building uh, and I remember I was this way. You probably were too. You like you don't think that's an option. No, like, I, sure. I, I got to stay on at all times. I'm going to miss something. Yeah. You don't realize that you have to let go to grow. Really, you got to let go and recharge. So that's awesome. So you're doing that. You're spending an hour or whatever you can sneak in, and then you feel like a new person. Probably oh, like you. It's a, it's a complete. It's a complete battery charge. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the full body meditation kind of feel where you're just yeah. energized, recharged, and now ready to go kick ass yeah. at, at a high level I'm, and sustain I'm, at a high level. I'm back to 100% where then I'll, you know, by then it's like 11, I'm doing whatever. Then it's a full day of work. Maybe yeah. you lunch, maybe you don't. And typically from four to seven, it's back to family time. <laughs> you know, if I'm picking up the kid, I mean, it depends. You know, sometimes we're doing tours or I'm out of town yeah. or yeah. it is for work, but. Usually five to seven, eight is back with the family, dinner, chill with them, hang out, you know, pool, whatever it is. And then we'll try to do dinner as a family. And I mean, I hate to say it, but probably three times a week, I'm cranking out two hours of emails at night. Yep. Three, where you're just playing catch up. Like, oh my God, I got to get through my Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty low key on the weekends. You know, I try to really just, as much as I can around the house, but yeah, that's my day today. I mean, yeah. last night was different because my girl was asleep. And, so this is such a this is such a great conversation here because what I have found, as I've said, is the more 
successful, however you define it, the more busy and the more consuming your business becomes, if you can get efficient and find time for yourself, it's almost like you put less time into the hours worked because you're working at a higher efficiency, higher energy, higher clarity. It just and it's it's counterintuitive. People don't understand it, but you have to take breaks, whether it's an hour a day, whether it's an hour a week, whatever it is. And you said you like yeah. to go to the beach and swim. Whatever it is, some people will go play tennis. Some people will meditate. Go to the gym. Yeah, whatever it can it be anything. Go to a movie. I know people that go to, when they're super stressed out, they'll go escape for a movie for two hours. You have to do that if you're going to perform at a peak high level and sustain yeah. it. Otherwise, you're just going to burn and crash, and you're going to be up and down. And the clients and and bro, they read it. They can feel it. They can feel it. Yeah, so, for sure. You know. I love that. So in your business, being commercial, you just, another thing that it just stuck out is like your weekends are your own for the most part, other than catching up for on work. Part. and yeah. You're not touring. So we're not touring. Clients no. aren't writing offers and you're not showing properties on weekends. No, we. I mean, I'll, I'll, I visit every property, no matter if it's a BOV evaluation or a listing or yeah. So I'll either put my kid in the car and we'll go to go visit a building, you know, or during their nap schedules, <laughs> I'll put him in the car and drive around. Why they're napping here. fall asleep and go yeah. look at six buildings. Yeah. That's um, brilliant. There you go. There's efficiency right there. <laughs> I do it all the time. My kid's sleeping in the car and I'm like driving. I'm like, all right, I got to get the kid down, downtown, Westlake. I got four buildings to walk to see and be home by this time. And he's sleeping in the car. Um, the only thing I do on weekends that really helps me and is, is like you talk about efficiency is I'll take an hour to 90 minutes and just plan the week. Like that's, that's what's going on this week. Okay. Where's the social time? Where's the business time? What, where are we in our continuum? You know, how many listings do we have? What do we got to do to get these sold? And I'll put a bunch of notes together where it's usually like, either Sunday night or sometimes Saturday morning, just for like an hour of just like, you're not really working, you're planning. Yeah, which is probably the most important you yeah. know, time, the planning and strategize. So you'll spend, you'll block out, it's just a, a every weekend kind of thing to yeah. go over everything, strategize, plan, and figure out. I mean, that, that's another really crucial point because if you're not recalibrating constantly, how do you stay on track and how do you yeah. make adjustments when the track isn't going the way you want it to go? And I think that's another critical, critical habit that so many people need to figure out how to incorporate uh, planning. What Again, it could be 15 minutes of planning, it could be 15 minutes, stuff, sure. but it's like spending time to slow down and stop and, and think about your business, not just work in it. You got to, as the business owner, you got to think about it. There's a lot yeah. at stake, a lot of moving parts. And in our game and the real estate game, as you said, there's new things coming up every day. It doesn't matter if you're an expert or not. There's still new stuff and shifts and laws. And blah, blah, blah. so that's really important. Another key thing. So you're hitting on a lot of themes that yeah, I love talking about. If you try to do it Monday morning, you're late. To me, you're late. You're late, and then you're stressed and getting pulled, and then something yeah, comes up. Yeah, it's Monday morning. Everyone wants answers, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's good to, to – that's a great tip for everybody, and I'm going to remind myself to do more of that, to spend some time, whether it's 10 minutes or two hours, planning your week and getting that set so that you're not scrambling Monday morning and starting your week behind the eight ball 
stressed out, and then you're not in your best mindset, and then you're oh, yeah. you're reacting. You know, you're reacting. Don't react. Don't react. Be proactive, not reactive. Oh, school is in session, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, you're telling me. I, I'm grateful you brought it up because it reminds me of like when you're reactive, you're stressed, and you're just kind of doing it. Yeah. So uh, talk to me about some fun stuff, man. What do you guys got planned? Any vacations, uh, spring break next week? Well, no, it's not spring break. I guess winter break, Thanksgiving. What are you taking the kids anywhere? What's, yeah, the, what's the fun stuff on your calendar coming up in the next six months? We used to do a lot of traveling. It's you know a little bit challenging with the newborn, but I, I think we're doing Cabo in a few weeks if we get our passports straightened out. And yeah. And if they let uh, you out of the country. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. Um, we're doing a camping trip with my brother and his kids, or just the boys. We're going uh, camping somewhere near the nice. tree. For Are they in L.A. too? Well, yeah, my brother's in there. Yeah, so you got your brother and the cousin. That's fun. That's fun. And uh, trying to do something over the new year, we're not sure. Um, but it would be nice to, to get the feel and the sense of a different country. Yeah. Cabo is great, but it's Cabo. It's not yeah, it's an extension of L.A. Greece or something, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. It'd be nice to get some real traveling in after this last two years of being locked down and get out there. So hopefully this variant and this scare will simmer down and we can get back to life. Uh, anything else you want to share? Any any sort of sentiments on uh, the market moving forward? You know, I know your crystal ball. What is it telling you? What do you see over the next 12 months, 18 months? Uh, there's so much unknown out there with COVID and banking and Sure. Stimulus and so many moving parts. But what are you? What is your? What is your crystal ball telling you? Let's end on that. Um, my crystal ball is telling me. Uh, Move to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my crystal ball does tell me that once in a while. I was like, how do you get out of the freaking, you know, the, the wheel? Um, the wheel. Stockholm sounds good. Yeah, Stockholm. You know, I, I did a semester abroad and. Copenhagen when I was at SC. Yeah. Yeah, the quality of life in some of these Scandinavian places. They got it right. It's so high. <laughs> these guys are just ecstatic all the time. Yeah, they have um, it right. You know, I think a lot of what I'm getting from clients is a little bit of fear from tax consequences Yeah, that might change next year. So a lot of people are just like, oh, I need to make a move today rather than later because – it could, especially if you're selling and pulling out versus doing an exchange. Got it. Like, oh, let me consider doing that today because I don't know how the tax policies are going to affect real estate owners next year. Sure, sure. That 5 or 10% increment on your portfolios, you know, that's your retirement, your free, your inheritance. There's a lot riding on that. People spent sure. the last couple decades building wealth and yeah, 10% exactly. of that is a big kid for sure. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I think we're busier than we thought we'd be today yeah. than a year ago. You know, th there was a time, Danny, I'm sure for you, where for a couple months, I mean, it was radio silent. Uh, yeah, I was out of business. The first Nothing three, four, on. five months, it was like, okay, I guess I'm going to go coach some high school football or baseball and go, that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go do something else. Early retirement. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was crickets. And then it took off and it hasn't slowed down. I think that what you just said about fear, a lot of people are, it's creating urgency of wanting to make a move now 
for fear that something bad can happen, whether it's COVID, whether it's interest rates, whether it's debt, whether it, whatever it is, there's a lot of uh, urgency. I think I'm feeling that as well. And look, we've been saying that, you know, interest rates are historically low for 20 years. Yeah. But 3% is really low. <laughs> yeah. 2.5% is they're giving away money. Yeah. So on the other side, people are like, I got to put this money to work. Got to put it to work. What am I doing sitting? First of all, you have to refine and take advantage of the rates or else you're making a mistake. Yeah. And then when you refi, if you're pulling out equity, well, it's like, now I got all this equity. What am I going to do with it? Got to put it to work. You got to put it to work. And then you want it. So that that's a part of it that people are just like, let me lock in the rates now. I have a lot of mortgage brokers that are just like up to here with work because yeah. they can't keep up. They can't keep up. They can't keep up. All right, man. Well, anything else you want to share? I really appreciate all these insights. You've uh, covered oh, you're a awesome. lot of ground. Thanks for having me on. Um, the only thing I tell you is like my relationship with you is important, and I appreciate you bringing me on. And I think awesome. uh, yeah, thank you. When, when you think about it, we're really all we have at the end of it is relationships with people for business and memories with family and friends. Of course, so, that's everything. That's everything. You know, I just try to keep that alive and, and try to. Uh, I always think about the relationship first with anybody, with any deal, with any transaction. You know how many deals go sideways? Of course. But I always preserve the relationship. Yeah, the relationships are long-term. A deal comes and goes. Tell us, where can people find you? What's your website? Just for the people Uh, out there. We'll put it in the show notes. But what's your website? If someone wants to find a deal and a good investment broker, I know that you have have an investment list that people can join. But what's your website? Our website is thenemagroup.com. You can always reach me at 310-909-5444. We don't take pocket listings. We do massive exposure on all our deals. So people always ask me, what was your next deal? It goes out at the same time, but everyone gets it. It's one yeah. of the reasons why I think we're successful is we I don't like that. We don't really like, oh, if you can sell it, no, if you're going to sell it, expose it, do it right. So we put everything out there and uh, I love it. I, and I'm always here to help. If anyone needs to ask me something that it doesn't benefit me, I'm happy to help. And I mean that. So I hope someone takes me up on that. Appreciate it, brother. Good to see you. Let's connect soon. So get at lunch or dinner. Good luck yeah, in the sure. twilight zone with the baby. But uh, appreciate it. And I want to talk to you offline about a deal. So let's talk soon. All right, cool. <laughs> All right, great job, man. All right, talk man, to you soon. So much. All right, take you. care. Thanks, Thank man. You. you did great. Thanks. Bye-bye.